Welcome to Quad Life. I'm your host, Brian Bell. On today's show, Murray Seipel. Murray began drawing at the age of two. As a teen, he recorded conversations on cassette recorders, made pause VCR tapes off the TV, and displayed his Polaroids in appropriated gallery spaces. He was accepted into Ebley Carr University of Art and Design in 1990, and he began to experiment with different mediums. With a need for art school money, Murray's skills with cameras led him to becoming a pioneer in producing, directing, filming, and editing snowboard and skateboard videos. Those videos went from covering local riders to traveling the world filming top professionals. At the beginning of a bright career, Murray was involved in a high-speed motor vehicle accident, and combined with an emergency room mistake, he was left quadriplegic. In rehabilitation, Murray immediately began drawing again. His drawing led him to design, a way to express how he needed things adapted for him, from ramps to bathrooms to clothing. He built an adapted house in North Vancouver that gained international press for combining modern design with barrier-free access. Living there led him to writing and directing Carts of Darkness, a film of homeless people who ride shopping carts downhill to collect bottles. Murray shifted mediums to painting when he moved to Mexico and continued to paint when he returned to Canada, exploring themes that evoke fears of what may lurk behind the darkness. Murray now resides on Salt Spring Island with his partner, Lexi. Welcome to uh, Quad Life, man. It's, Thank uh, you. Great, great to have you do an interview with me and uh, spend a bit of time. Sure, I'm happy to. Well, I looked up your webpage and I saw it says Murray Seipel Wallet Moth. Yeah. <laughs> what does Wallet Moth mean? Well, I was looking for uh, like an art tag for myself to use for Instagram. And I went to get my hair cut after a, a party weekend. And I opened my wallet to pay for the haircut and a moth flew out. Huh. So I thought, that's my name now, Wallet Moth. That's too funny. Kind of makes sense because, you know, you rip through money and after the weekend, all you got left is air and a moth. You grew up in Kamloops and you were the quarterback of the football team. What was it like growing up in a small town? Well, it was a great small town to grow up in because, uh, you know, it's about 80,000 people and it's pretty spread out and there's so much to do in that town. There's lakes and mountains to ski on and the city had a lot of schools and a lot of football. I never played hockey, but I was really into football and started skateboarding and snowboarding there. But I did leave the day of graduation to move to Vancouver because I had enough of the small town. I think I used it up as much as I could and I needed to go bigger. Yeah. Did you did you ever go to 100 Mile? Actually, I went to 100 Mile quite a lot because my dad sold trucks. So he'd go up there on sales missions and we'd go to Williams Lake and 100 Mile and all those places up there. Clinton, Horsefly, all cool. those little spots. Yeah. It's what been a while of, though. What kind of trucks did he sell? He sold like Mack trucks, Freightliners, Kenworth, all that kind of stuff. So I pretty much grew up driving around in trucks skipped a lot of school right on i used yeah. to build uh great liner trucks oh yeah in vancouver uh yeah in burnaby i i was a welder there and i built the frame rails and some of the parts for the trucks okay so i, I was right at the very start of the of the line production sure. yeah it was kind of cool yeah did you ever work on a ranch I never worked on a ranch. No? Nope. <laughs> Probably to my dad's disappointment because he grew up on ranches and pretty country and western oriented. And I was a football playing skateboarder that only worked summer jobs that usually were linked to trying to meet girls. I always used to piss him off because he said I never worked hard enough. Well, being the quarterback of the football team must open a lot of doors for you. 
you know what, actually, girl-wise, it never really paid off. No. I got, I got away with a lot at school, so. Yeah, I heard something about Mercury. Oh, geez. Yeah, that was uh, a weird mistake I got involved with. And I, I was in a science class, and they had a bottle of Mercury laying around. And I grabbed it and poured a little bit on the ground. And, you know, Mercury sort of disperses right away. It kind of rolls into little balls and takes off. And it was kind of cool. So I took it and I showed a couple friends and I said, I don't want it. I'm here. You take this bottle of mercury. And uh, I forgot about it. And that afternoon in school, everybody had been passing around, pouring it on the ground, watching the balls roll away. And uh, sooner or later, I got called to the office and they thought I had deliberately tried to poison the school by pouring mercury into the heating vents, <laughs> which wasn't the case. But they had the cops there, and I was in big trouble. Too funny. Yeah, and then I ended up having to clean out all the filters from the air ducts in the school as my punishment. Go through bags and bags of dust to get reclaim all the mercury. Did you did you get end up with the same amount at the end? Or? No, not even no, close. Not even close. No. So there's mercury poisoning all the kids in the school right now. <laughs> <laughs> so as as most small town kids you you did go to vancouver after you after you graduated uh what were you kind of hoping to find like what were you looking for uh, well i i didn't have uh like football ended at grade 12 i never got into any of the colleges so i decided i'd go to vancouver and try and start my own career without going to college so i actually looked at being a pilot and i looked at being a stockbroker and i sort of tested the waters and was working down there actually i worked at a logging trailer factory painting logging trailers where was that in burnaby and a lot of my friends from high school, we're all going to UBC and SFU. So I was going to all their pub nights and parties. And I realized that they had it pretty easy going to school, just doing a bit of studying and a lot of partying. And I was working my ass off. So eventually I realized my ideas of becoming a pilot or a stockbroker weren't that great. So I decided to go back to school at, uh, in fine arts because that was where my real skills were. I always drew, and I always liked to make things like sculptures, and I spray painted a lot, and I luckily got into Emily Carr. So- Were you one of, those, one of those bombers with this, when you were a kid with the spray cans? Um, only when someone pissed me off and I tagged their house, but basically I did uh, a stencil, graffiti so oh, i okay. kind of stencil and then go out and spray it up and leave that was the fastest way to get something done without getting caught cool yeah. did you did you go to emily carr with the idea that you were going to be a filmmaker or i had no idea um they have what's called a foundation year and you sort of sample all the different arts um i was good at photography and uh I felt that after learning a bunch of art history and studying everything from painting to drawing and everything, photography excited the most. Me, it excited me the most because it was the newest art form. Painting's been around since the caveman, so coming up with new painting ideas is a challenge. Everything's kind of been done. But photography was new, and that led into film and video. So looking back at your experience at Emily Carr, what Carr, would you uh, recommend art school to a young person like now? Like, do you think it makes a difference? Oh, absolutely. Um, I know a lot of self-taught artists, um, but the experience of being with other artistic disciplines and learning from teachers that were practicing artists um, I don't think you could get that experience by doing art yourself without being trained. And uh, the, only, um, the only thing that went kind of wrong with my art school was I, I was in film and video and at Emily Carr, that's sort of an experimental world. So they really encouraged, you know, like 
experimenting as much as possible everything from like drawing on the film and then shooting it to building sculptures that had film projectors in them to I don't know just a variety of experimental film and video techniques and when I left I never really had a solid understanding of the film industry or script writing or you know pursuing money from producers and that kind of thing I was really an experimental film artist were you living in North Van when you were going to school and at Emily Carr no I I had a ridiculous amount of addresses I lived all over Kitsilano and the West End and East Van I, I was constantly on the move I didn't end up in North Van until after I was injured. I, at the end of Emily Carr, I started to get into snowboard and skateboard filmmaking. That led me to North Van because a lot of skaters at that time were from North Van. And also Cypress and Seymour had a lot of snowboarding going on. Mm-hmm. Um, eventually, I actually moved to Whistler for four or five years. And then I was hurt and I ended up moving back to North Van. Just the, the culture of North Van sort of drew you there initially? I really wanted to live in Whistler, but um, access to rehab and hospitals and stuff like that wasn't that great. And the price was high and people party up there a lot. So I felt if I was in North Van, I was close enough to the city, but I still lived on a mountain and I still had the big trees and the snowfalls. And where I lived, kind of like you, I was in a private area on the end of the street. It felt like I was up away from town, but I was really, you know, right off the highway and I could go anywhere I wanted from there. Yeah, it's like living in a small town in the big city. Exactly, well it was, because by the time I left in May, I moved to Salt Spring, and by the time I moved, all my friends had moved away, no one could afford it, and no new friends moved into the neighborhood and it's busy there. There's so much development and the bridges, as you know, are terrible. So it wasn't worth staying there anymore. It wasn't really paying off. Yeah, I sort of came to that conclusion too. I just, it wasn't doing it for me anymore. It just wasn't a, wasn't the same place I grew up in anymore. True. Yeah, it changed a lot. You were in a couple of avalanches and a couple of helicopter crashes. Oh, you tell did me, your research. Tell me about that. That's interesting. I Well, I, the avalanches were inevitable because I was filming snowboarding basically all over the world. And, you know, when you're filming someone jump off a cliff, you're below the cliff. And eventually someone's going to cut a line in the snow and drop some snow on you. So one time in particular, I was buried. It was actually not a big dramatic avalanche like they sound. It was just a slough of snow, but heavy enough to bury me. And a lot of other situations like that, where you were in a small slough of snow and pushed around a lot. That was quite an experience. And the helicopter crashes were related to, in the summers at Emily Carr, I used to go forest firefighting. And one time in a helicopter, we had too much weight. And when it picked up, the wind pushed the helicopter into the trees as it was taken off and knocked the rotors off. And we dropped to the ground. Did you shit your pants? (laughs) I quit forest firefighting. (laughs) and went and worked as a waiter again, so I stayed alive. It was a little safer. Yeah. We also crashed... uh, an old DC-3, like a 1929 two-engine plane. When we took off, one of the engines burnt out. So we had to land with one engine. It made us spin around on the runway and everybody had to run away before it all blew up. It never did, but uh, another near-death experience. My dad used to say to me, I ended up in a wheelchair so I wouldn't die. That's a lot of craziness. So you were ultimately in a car crash uh, that led to your injury. Yeah. Um, Your injury worsened by Dr. Error. Yeah. Can you tell me a bit about what happened? Well, we were in a high-speed motor vehicle accident where 
I was a passenger in the back seat of a sports car, which didn't have much of a back seat. And we, uh, we sort of flew off a highway exit ramp and landed 40 feet down on the roof. So my head hit the roof and, and dislocated my C6 and 7, which caused a little bit of paralysis. I couldn't move once the car was crashed. I was stuck in it. By the time the ambulance got there, I was moving and I was lifting my legs and squeezing their fingers while they were driving me to the hospital. When I got to the hospital, I felt pretty good, but I knew something was wrong because when the accident happened, I saw a big blue spark in my neck. Like it I felt like a blue spark had shot out of me. And the nurse was insisting that I was okay. It seemed like they were extremely busy. They had three drunk driving accidents in that emergency room at that time. And they had to call in an extra doctor to handle the overload. And I was one of the people that he had to handle. And apparently that doctor had been at a party when they called him in. So we sort of think he was drunk or and or high because he took an x-ray that was blurry, sent me back for another x-ray, circled the C1 to C5 vertebrae and dismissed it as nothing was wrong with me. In fact, called me a wimp and that I was complaining. I was like, no, man, I felt and heard my neck break. You're not letting me go. And he instructed the nurse to take the collar off. And when she did, it cracked. And then I became paralyzed. Did you hear it? Yes, I heard it. And I had a second massive blue spark. I don't know. It just felt like everything that I learned physically in my entire body shot out of me at one time. And uh, I've been a complete C6 quadriplegic since. It's been 24 years now. So did you, did you kind of like see this blue spark fly out or like what yeah. was that like it felt like a like a lightning bolt but coming out of me and going towards the sky i actually have been using it in some of my paintings lately interesting yeah and and you feel feel as though like all the like all your say muscle memory and all that kind of stuff flew out with that spark or yeah, like, it felt like like somehow your body forgot. It felt like every every physical experience and skill I have ever accumulated left me. Yeah, that, that's that's wild. Yeah, it was. And when I paint it now, I've been doing a series of paintings related to that car accident. And every time I paint that spark, I get a sore neck. And I kind of feel that kind of same sensation that happened at the car accident and it interrupts my painting. So I gotta take a break and calm down. Wow. Yeah. So you're really, you're really connecting with your, your medium there. Well, I'm trying to express as a painter what I've gone through so I can establish myself as a, as an artist that has a disability and why I have this disability and that my paintings may not reflect the fact that I have compromised hand strength and I'm using a chair and uh, I live with a disability. So I want people to know that right away. I want them to know that Murray was, Murray paints with compromised hands and that's what we're looking at. That's why we're watching or look, learning these stories through his paintings of this accident, similar to, uh, like Frida Kahlo did this kind of thing. She very much uh, expressed herself and her pains from her accident through her paintings. I haven't gone that far because I've just started painting really, but uh, I'm, I'm trying to express what I've gone through through painting. Wow. Um, did, you, did you ever talk to that doctor after, um, after all that, what had happened to you? So the doctor uh, wasn't from Kamloops, but he was working there. And 
obviously, as I've said, I'm from Kamloops and was on the football team and I had quite a reputation in that town. So when people found out that he had caused this damage to me, uh, he got a lot of black going out in public. And uh, within two months after my injury, he took his own life uh, by driving his car off a cliff. Oh, man. How, how did you feel when you heard the news? Well, no, um, nothing will ever get me walking again. So it wasn't like I was happy that he killed himself. I felt almost a little bit guilty, but I wasn't the one driving the car that caused all this in the first place. But I def was always definitely mad at him that he did not listen to me. And he actually called, I'll never forget when he called me a wimp. And I'm like, I am not a wimp. I am telling you that my neck broke and you're not listening. So um, what makes me most upset is that the hospital actually uh, bronzed his cowboy boots and have them on display at the hospital. And I just feel that's, um, it just irritates me to know that they're celebrating him when he, had, he caused my injury really sort of like one of those statues that they're tear tearing down or all around the world or something <laughs> i keep thinking i gotta go up there and get those boots or do something to those boots but i haven't really figured that out yet did you ever talk to his family or anything i never did no no, no. so back to north van a little bit you built an amazing accessible house yeah. Describe as a machine for living. Right. How does that come to be? How did that, how did that come to be? I guess. The house, um, it was sort of a project for me to test my design skills as well as, you know, being a manager of a big project. I was involved with architects and a contractor and I had to express my exact needs to build the house that I wanted and manage a budget and work with the crew. And for me, that was a way to get back into filmmaking in a sense because I was trying to get my idea of what my house should be like across to a, a bunch of people because it is difficult to get some ideas across without people taking it into another direction. And once it's built, it's built. So you gotta go backwards if things aren't done right. But um, the design of the house was dictated by my needs for accessibility and it ended up looking really cool because uh, when able-bodied people came in, they did realize that the countertops were slightly lower but other than that, there was no ramps, no special handrails, no nothing that looked medical. And so it just looked like a sleek, open, barrier-free house. I, I remember, I, I think I got to go in at one time after you built it or something. And that was, I was just blown away because I remember what you started with. Yes. Yeah, it was, it was really a great project. I got... I think it was in about 25 magazines and newspapers. It won three design awards. Yeah. And um, it actually led me to making a film because that house is where I saw people uh, that were collecting bottles out of the recycling bin. And I hadn't figured out how they got their shopping carts up there. And I realized they were riding them down. And that ended up becoming a film that I made, Parts of Darkness. An amazing film. Yeah. So was it hard to leave um, North Van and, and leave this amazing house that you built? You know what? The house was built for me, a single guy that liked to entertain. And I lived there for 20 years and I accumulated uh, my mother because my dad passed away. So I moved my mom in. And then I ended up in a full-time relationship, which I'm still in now. And so there was my mom and my girlfriend living in this basically big bachelor pad. And it didn't work anymore. It wasn't the right house to be living in. More importantly, though, was that I traveled quite a lot. When I travel, I realized that everywhere is cheaper 
and there's a lot more going on. So I was just wasting money in North Van and not getting any fun out of it anymore. So I was happy to like, you know, say goodbye. I had done my time there, it served its purpose, and now I'm happy on Salt Spring. Well, that's good to hear. So what what is Salt Spring like for you? So Salt Spring is nice because Salt Spring. Yeah, I'm up on Mount Maxwell. I'm on a mountain again, but it's in a rural area. I'm surrounded by farms with sheep and goats and horses and cows. And the community here is fantastic. Everybody's always willing to lend a hand for everything. It's basically accessible in the town. And um, my house is flat. It's a rancher and I'm reno renovating it right now, more for aesthetic purposes though. It's got an amazing art community. You must feel really at home there. That's how I ended up here. I entered a painting into the Salt Spring National Art Prize and they accepted me. So I made a few trips over and we were investigating some of the real estate on these trips and we decided maybe we should try and go for it and buy a house here. And that led to us finding a good real estate agent and, and getting a house. But the art community that I met here is outstanding. It feels like almost everybody is doing some form of art. And if they aren't, they're a very appreciative of art. Yeah, I, I just got that energy there. Just such an amazing art community. And it's uh, tight-knit and close and easy to access, whereas in North Van, Although they do have a new good gallery there, the Polygon Gallery. Everybody that I knew that was in the art world was so spread apart. You know, I'd have a couple friends in East Van, a couple friends in North Van, a couple downtown. You know, by the time you all get together for a beer, months go by. Whereas mm -hmm. here, you can just call up someone down the street and talk about art or have, have them look at what you're up to or go see what they're doing. It's nice. Drop into a local coffee shop and things happen exactly they do yeah. uh when i was in jf strong i uh had a friend sally sunshine do you ever hear of her no i never heard that name before she was on salt spring okay just uh, just curious if you'd heard of her she just was an amazing person and very artistic and spiritual and just lovely lady and i i miss her and just was curious, maybe if you'd heard about it. I'll, I'll watch out for it's small here. I'll run into her at some point. So are you now going to build another earth machine or on Salt Spring? <laughs> By earth machine, do you mean house? Your house, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, yes. I. But what I'm really building is a detached studio gallery. It's just has the foundation built right now, but I'm building a 750 square foot new workspace that I'm really excited about. Wow. Yeah. I, I'm assuming that your mom passed or did what, or what happened? Oh no, uh, oh, she okay. moved to Seashelf. I have a sister in Seashelf, okay. so Sorry. she went over there. <laughs> Sorry, mom. Yeah. <laughs> It wasn't easy. She, we, we like living together, but I, I'm here to start a family and I spent five years with her and my sister would like to spend some time with her. So it all worked out. Are there things you're going to now take from the old house and put into the new house? Things that you're going to change or want to do um, different? I, I know what you mean, but uh, my last house was very modern, lots of glass and um, a lot of uh, big open areas. In this house, we're kind of going for more of a um, country feel. <laughs> and uh, the last house, I spent most of my budget on the house itself. And this house, I want to spend more money on the landscaping so I have more access to the gardens. And Beautiful. We have a, like just over an acre here, but it's all dirt and grass and little rolly hills. So right now we're putting in pavers to make pathways everywhere. Are you finding your needs change now as you're getting older? Like uh, as far as mobility goes a little bit? The only thing 
nothing's really changed that way. The only thing that's changed is my, I don't go to bed as late. I don't go out as late. And that's another thing about the island that's nice. There's not much to do that, like needing to go out late and do that kind of thing. So it's, uh, you know, live in a rural community and enjoy the day and work a little bit at night and go to bed and get up early. Yeah, I'm usually getting in the fart sack by about seven. Yeah, well, that's early. Yeah, I, I'll watch a little tube or something for a while. And I'm usually turning the lights out at 10 o'clock. Right. <laughs> I, I just, I can't stay up so much anymore. I got to put some effort into it. <laughs> um, I'm a big proponent of solar energy. Are, are you, uh, are you going to incorporate that in your house or you, do you do any of that kind of? I looked at it, but we haven't done it. And I don't think we're going to yet anyways. It would probably be a good idea because where we live, like I was telling you, I was expecting a windstorm today and maybe lose power. So it would be nice to have our own backup power, but I'm just gonna run a backup generator on propane. Okay. So you'd always, you, you got uh, access to your computer and any other things that you're gonna need, you, uh, you can't really hook it up to a candle. No, this generator will be uh, on it. We have a giant propane tank, and if whatever happens up here, we'll be able to run our house no matter what. Right on. Yeah. So, yeah, you lived in Mexico. What made you go down there? Um, well, we were, I was getting sick of the winters. In North Van, it's pretty dark. It's pretty much in a cloud from November to March, and I was getting seasonal affective disorder. So I started taking off in the winter. One winter I went to Spain and another winter I went to Thailand and then thought we should try driving down to Mexico. So I outfitted my van with a bed and drove down, rented a house there in a small farm town um, just north of Puerto Vallarta. And it was a great experience. We wanted to go back. And that was a problem with living in North Van, paying so much up there and then leaving it for months at a time. So I figured if I downsized to move to Salt Spring, it'll free up money to go south every winter. Sweet. So you got a place down in Mexico as well? Well, we were renting one. And uh, next time we'll try and find one in another town. So would you buy a place or just keep renting and going around doing different things? I mean, it would be really nice to have a place down there, but it's so hard to maintain when you're away. And it's difficult to trust what's actually happening down there. So uh, I prefer to be free and rent when I need to. What What's it like living in Mexico? Well, um, a lot of people were worried about me, but... We were there for just over six months and we never had a single problem at all. Nothing. I didn't even get sick once. Nice. So um, I love that. The accessibility isn't great, but it wasn't a deterrent. Like I was able to do everything I wanted. And if I couldn't get somewhere, there was always people willing to help or lift a chair. So um, you have to be creative and have some guts and go for it. If you want power doors and flat surfaces everywhere, you're just not going to get it. And I knew that going down there. So I was prepared for, we had a dirt street and uh, we had to build a couple ramps into the entrances of the house and we made it work. And you always can, right? There's always a way to make it work. There's oh yeah, there's always a way. and. I was getting medical supplies FedEx to me, and they have a great hospital there in Puerto Vallarta, which I never ended up using, but it was there. And we had friends coming and going, short flight from Canada. Um, so yeah, we made the best of it, and we had a great time. We're looking forward to going back. My my buddy Oscar, he uh, he's down on the Baja, and he. Right? Uh, he always invites me to come down and I've always been chicken shit. So maybe I, I need to give that a try. <laughs> uh, you also, you said you went to Thailand and you went by yourself. 
Did that? Yeah, I did. I actually have gone twice to Thailand by myself. Um, I lived in Bangkok for three months and uh, that worked out as well. It's not accessible. I wouldn't suggest people go. I'm not like a super quad or very good using my manual wheelchair, but nonetheless, I was able to to live in that city and get around with other people's help when needed. The Thai people are extremely friendly. And again, like no problems, never got sick, could always get medical supplies, FedEx. And uh, it was a great experience. I'd love to go back there too. But I didn't have a vehicle. I, I drive a van and that's the thing I miss the most when I go to Europe or Southeast Asia is you're relying on taxi cabs. In Thailand, they have a problem with their taxi drivers. They uh, There's a bit of a crack and methamphetamine issue down there, and the drivers are all high. <laughs> so it's pretty difficult to instruct someone in another language that's high and driving how to take your wheelchair apart and put it in the trunk. So what would you tell a, a quad going down there, traveling down there, an SCI person? It, if you could bring someone to help you definitely and if you can't bring someone just be prepared as much as humanly possible because you're going to run into situations there that are that's why i go though i love running into those situations if you don't have that want to be uh put into a weird spot and get a good story out of it you might not enjoy it it's it's pushing into the fear exactly yeah. Did you ever have one of those holy fuck I'm, I'm I'm in over my head moment? Well, yeah, one one time I I went out really late at night to Kosan Road. It's like an infamous party spot for all the people that are coming to Thailand and then disperse, dispersing to all the beaches. So people fly into Bangkok, they go to Kosan Road and they get supplies and meet their friends and then take off to the beaches. And I had stayed there really late and I got a taxi home and the driver was really high and he was eating mangoes on a stick and he stopped uh, steering. So I had to steer. (laughs) (laughs) And then he got us lost, really lost. And the data on my phone wasn't working. And I ended up getting him to call the hotel so they could send someone to pick me up from where he was and get home. And it was a long, drawn-out experience, but it was fun. It was an interesting cool. night. Very cool. Yeah. Um, so as an artist, what would you say your main medium is? Well, it was making videos for a long time. I mean, before I got hurt, I'd made six snowboard and skateboard videos. and went around the world to make those then that career was ended when I got injured and it took 10 years before I was able to make another film which was Carts of Darkness and then after that I kept writing scripts and trying to get them funded but I just kept running into a dead end I think I blame still that it's a disability. It's hard to hire a director that's only able to work so many hours a day and needs the support that I would need to keep up with film industry standards. You know, they work 12 or 14 hours a day. I can't do that. I could if I had so many extra people propping me up, making sure that I was staying awake. But uh, after that, after another five or six years of trying to get scripts produced and hustling at film festivals everywhere I I was just burning through my own money and not getting anywhere that's why we went to Mexico I was going to write a book and think maybe I should be a writer now instead of trying to get films made and while I was writing I got bored and started painting on the walls and some friends on Instagram commented that I should be doing stuff on canvas. And I'd never thought of it. I'd never painted before. And I just went for it and started painting and my Instagram blew up and I came home and ended up with a a solo exhibition. So since then I've been painting nonstop. Right on. Yeah. 
Um, there, there's a quote from your bio where you said, I want people to understand by looking deeper into my paintings that they were created not only by a person with a disability, but a person with a disability living as an outsider. Can you explain what that means? Well, as um, I mean, coming from like a snowboard and skateboard background, you know, we're always up to some crazy shit. So I, that carried through after I was injured into doing traveling to, you know, crazy places by myself and getting into trouble. And then I pursue my images that I'm using now by trying to get myself into situations where I see dangerous or scary things. So that's what I mean uh, by living as an outsider is that I, I am not doing the normal thing ever. Is this why your uh, shadow figures, um, uh, they're kind of dark? What, what is that? Is that what that represents? In a way it does, because in Mexico, that shadow figure is sort of, uh, well, it comes from the Virgin of Guadalupe, which is the Mexican version of the Virgin Mary. And you see her in shrines everywhere. And in Mexico, where we lived, it was rural and a bit dangerous. We actually lived right on the street with cartel people. And you'd see bodies and dead animals and just fires for no reason. And we lived in chaos, really. And uh, there was everywhere a, uh, an altar or a grave on the side of the road or at someone's house. They all had this Virgin of Guadalupe. And the the silhouette of her reminds me of my skateboarding friends and me that all wear hooded sweatshirts. So I started drawing that as kind of a reminder of coming from skateboarding. And then I just have kept going with that ghost image. Do you think there's uh, the, like the darkness and the disability are sort of are interconnected that uh, the, re the, the reason I was interested in that figure was I'm not religious, but with the state of the world and the way it is now with bad pollution and environmental situations going on and bad politics, really, I just felt like that the world needs something to scare the shit out of it. And I think that's what the Virgin Mary had done to people back then, or the thought of her even existing scared people into being doing things the right way and pleasing their church. And we don't have anything like that right now. It's, it's just a free-for-all way people are living. I'm not uh, trying to push any religion, but I like the idea of some, some, something otherworldly scaring the pants off us so we start to finally live better on this planet, saving it. Obviously, a lot of people with SCI struggle with body image and how they perceive their bodies after injury. And I noticed many of the shadow figures have atypical bodies and they're missing parts of their bodies. What are you trying to convey in that imagery? Well, I never give the... the the ghost figure, any hands, face, feet, there's nothing. It's really just a cloak. It's just the shape of someone. Because I don't want to, uh, I'm not trying to represent any gender or anything, just a spirit. Wow. Yeah. So you got your Carts of Darkness hoodie on. Yeah. That looks pretty cool. Thank you. Uh, when did you sort of know that you wanted to become a filmmaker? Um, well, I mean, I've always been fascinated by movies forever, um, ever since renting VHSs way back. But I never thought I'd have the opportunity to do it, especially being from Kamloops, especially being just a Canadian. The access to filmmaking here is extremely difficult unless you're in the film industry making car commercials or uh, TV shows. And that, that never interested me. So my goal was to actually be a feature film director. I just never got there. 
One of your biggest successes, obviously, has been Cards of Darkness. What was the evolution of that film? How did that, I guess you sort of mentioned something about the guys coming down the hill. Yeah, well, that, you know, I was not, you know, since I'd been injured, I had not been filming any snowboarding or skateboarding or anything of action. So when I saw these guys riding their carts down the hill, I thought that this may be the only place in the world that this is happening. I have a disability. They're homeless. There's alcoholism. There's extreme sports. It kind of checked all the boxes to make a film. And when I was in Emily Carr, I was always fascinated by seeing documentaries and experimental films from other parts of the world that were outside of Hollywood. Uh, films from Russia, films from Eastern Europe, German films, everything. Films from South America. And I always thought there's a small group of people on this planet that appreciate that kind of work. If I ever can make a weird film that someone sees in another part of the world and go, wow, where is that happening? That's going to be the film I want to make. And that ended up being Carts of Darkness. And still, even now, I'm getting fan mail from all over the world, everywhere from Australia to Europe to South America, everywhere. People are messaging me almost once or twice a day, 10 years after the film's been made, saying, how are the guys in the film doing? What's your next film? And complimenting me on it. And a lot of people saying that the film had changed them, that they had gotten something from it, that they'd learned about a compromised community that they'd never had a had exposure to and that they some wanted to pursue filmmaking or be more helpful to the homeless so what was it like getting to know uh, all those guys i mean it was hilarious because it really reminded me of skateboarding and the people that were involved with skateboarding they're all outsiders but at the same time it was a it was really difficult because they did have uh, issues, mainly alcoholism, and you knew they would never change, and they never did. They, they're stuck in their ways. I provided them opportunity, and I tried to help, but at the same time, it was a film that had to be about them and uh, with them, and so living with them, you know, for three years, I spent time with those guys, and I mean, it was a challenge. A couple of them died along the way. They had to be cut out of the film because they didn't have enough of their story. Uh, three of them died after the film. There's only one left. So, you know, I was immersed in their world, their friends, and uh, they weren't able to get out of their situation and they died as a result. How does a SCI change the dynamic of making a film or does it really? In, in that case, um, I had to approach it way different than any other able-bodied filmmaker might. Um, for one, I had heavily relied on my van. So my van was able to get me everywhere that I needed to go. I researched everything that I filmed in a weird way. Like I would hang out with the characters in the film without filming, get their story, make them comfortable with me, and then go back the next day with a crew and basically recreate what they told me the day before. They love telling stories. So it wasn't like I had to get them to act. If I found out they'd you know, gotten drunk and rode a shopping cart down some road the night before and ended up at the cop shop, they'd just tell the same story again the next day. So it was easy to get them to tell their story. And that was one thing interesting about the homeless people too, is they need a platform to tell their story. No one listens to them. So they were more than willing to speak. Although I had to usually stop filming by noon because that's when they started to get drunk. And you know, you can't really film drunk people and hold it against them in any way. So that was a challenge as well. It was all early morning filming. So they kind of had a schedule they were working on as well. Well, by the time they got 20 bucks worth of bottles, they see you later. They're going to the liquor store. Yeah. Is there any more carts of darkness to come? 
we've tried a few times to do a San Francisco version, like a Carts of Darkness 2, and I've found cart riders in San Francisco and I reached out to them and they were willing to do it, but then the pandemic happened and it's on hold, but it might happen. Are these uh, cart riders or are they similar people as the, as the, as the guys in North Van? Basically the same situation just in San Francisco and way more urban. That was the nice thing about the North Van guys is they kind of lived in the forest. So yeah. you got this good mix of, you know, uh, collecting bottles and being in a community, but at the same time they were outside eating fish and living in tents and enjoying nature. Whereas the San Francisco, I know it's just going to be an urban gong show. I heard you in an interview say that the guys in Carts of Darkness were good at covering up their traumas it feels like in the sci community people don't really want to give you the full goods on how they're really doing do you think we do the same as people with disabilities or with sci um i it depends um you know i have i had quite an experience getting an injury i'm sure everybody did but when, a, when someone approaches me that I don't know who they are and their immediate question is, how did I end up in a wheelchair? I usually feel kind of offended because what are they gonna give me back if I tell them what I have went through? So sometimes I'll say, I'll tell you what happened. Can you tell me how you lost your virginity? Or can you tell yeah. me what I, yeah. serious thing? I, I want payback. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not gonna spill my beans to someone I've never met before just to have them pat me on the back and say, oh, you look, you look good. You ever get the one where uh, you get a, uh, where you probably did before, where like, you get a girl come up and say, can you have sex? And then you're like, yeah, can you? <laughs> yes. It's, just, it's funny that what the, the questions that will, people will come up and ask you just right out of the blue. It, it's interesting. I actually get that from men more because they say, oh, that must suck because you now you you can't really like, you know, have sex, which isn't true. And then I look at them and I ask them, like, what about you? Like, are you like a lady? Yeah. <laughs> Do you ever sort of pretend to be a little sort of tougher exterior than than you are to prove that your disability is isn't an obstacle um no i'll i'll admit that i can't do things or can't go places i'll i i'm very apprehensive about getting myself like put in a dangerous spot as far as being carried upstairs and stuff like that I, mm. um but I don't really know how to answer your question other than like, I'm, I'm willing to be brave, but I don't want to get hurt anymore. I guess what I'm trying to say is just like, I, sometimes I feel like I, I just want to try to pretend that I got a little bit tougher exterior. So people don't try to treat me like I'm sick because I'm not sick. I, I just had an injury. I'm still still the same person and everything yeah i understand yeah it happens a lot when i'm traveling and i always go i'm here like by myself how bad do you think my life is i'm in thailand by myself oh man when you when i heard that you did that i was just blown away it's like when sam told me about going to uh china sam sullivan right he went there by himself as well Oh, wow. And uh, man, oh, man, that just, that seems so scary. He yeah. said, it's amazing what $20 will do. Right. <laughs> I don't know if you experienced the same thing in Thailand. As far as paying for help, no, but there was a lot of help there. Yeah. Actually, it was crazy there because I was there during a, a massive citywide protest and shutdown, and there was, outside the hotel was grenades and gunfire for weeks 
that I had to stay in the hotel compound itself while you, you know, people outside were getting shot. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> that must be a little, uh, a little freaky. It was, but again, more stories. And I ended up meeting more people inside the hotel as a result. Everybody was sort of trapped there. So I met some interesting people, some people from record labels that had signed the Eagles. Another guy was a documentary filmmaker from Finland. Someone was there writing a book. And normally at a hotel resort, you, you rarely interact except for some beer talk. But yeah. these people became my friends over that time and still are. How cool. Yeah. Back to carts. When I, when I watched the end of, of carts, I, I was really moved by you getting into the to the, the buggy and it sort of seemed like an obvious thing in a way uh i've ridden down the hill that hill on my bike at full full speed man yeah uh what was going through your mind when you're going down the hill like that's a that's a relief a release of of power isn't it you have well, to not in that situation. Actually, I booked about two months off of my schedule following that just in case I was hurt because I knew I was going to get hurt. I was just banking on getting hurt. Big Al drinks and he's going to drive me in a shopping cart down a hill at speed and getting hurt. Um, so the first time we did it, he actually was really great. We flew down the hill, got the shot. It was a little bumpy, but uh, I felt like I was actually snowboarding or skateboarding again. I, that's the only time I've had that thrill, other than once in a roller coaster, roller coaster in Vegas that I got on. But uh, it would be something I would like to do often if it wasn't having a drunk drive you down the hill. The second time, however, he took some liberties knowing that he could do it and he got a little crazy and we got close to wiping out, but we made it. Thank God. Beautiful. That would have been yeah. with all that steel around you, your body. I just can imagine the kind of punishment you would have got if you'd rolled or something. Oh yeah. Wasn't nice. No. I mean, sitting in there, I'm six foot two. I had to get crunched into it. I didn't think about that before we made the shot, I just thought, yeah, you're gonna put me in there and we're gonna go down. And then I realized I'm bigger than the cart. So we really had to squash my knees in there. And I haven't had my knees scrunched like that for a long time, but we made it. Yeah. What other exciting projects uh, do you currently have on the go? Um, well, I've mostly been painting, but I'm just finishing an experimental film on the PE called Prize Home. We went every year and filmed uh, five, five years, five summers. We filmed the PE, but we tried to find the weirdest things we could film. And we took a lot of audio samples, recording sound effects, and interviews. And I've been working on this film for 15 years. Holy. trying to make it what it should be it's a it's definitely experimental and it's just a collision of sounds and images that tell a little story it should be out in the spring you have any uh links or anything you could share on that or uh um just on my website on wallet moth there's a little uh link to some of the information about that film okay well, i'll put that up on the sure on the my facebook page thing and thank you and my my instagram wallet moth official because someone already had wallet moth i guess um that has constant updates on my painting drawing and filmmaking um you you sort of mentioned something that your dad had said but i was made me think my my mom told me when i was a kid that i was gonna break my neck because i was always doing crazy shit and did you ever hear that kind of stuff from your parents? I always heard that someone else is like that crazy asshole is going to break his neck. Yeah. <laughs> I never heard it about myself, though. Reading all your accolades makes me wish I live a life as exciting as yours. Thank what you. Do you what do you attribute your success in finding your path? Oh man, I'm just determined to try and 
um, well, mostly have a good time and find where that good time is. But I also am very now focused on expressing my story and what a person with a disability can do with their disability. It's more of an ability. And uh, uh, at 50 now, almost 51, I'm concerned about leaving a legacy. So if I'm be successful in art and more people see my work that it hopefully will influence not only people with a disability to try and be more creative and express themselves, but also help tell people and break down the barriers of what it is to have a disability. Yeah. Um, you mentioned you want to start a family. You, you want to be a dad. Yeah, it's a crazy idea, but it's I'm well overdue. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm 50 and quadriplegic. So it's definitely going to be a challenge, but we're giving it a shot. Duncan Campbell had a, had a, ki had a kids fairly uh, mature. Duncan's yeah. listening to this right now. <laughs> I don't want to say older, but Duncan <laughs> was a bit it, older having kids. So that's good. Duncan was an original uh, inspiration to me because one time at GF Strong, he came to a talk for traveling with a disability. And he told me that him and a buddy wheelchaired from Amsterdam to Paris. And they're C6 quads. And I thought, if Okay, there we go. If someone like him can travel as a person with a disability, I know that the world's open to me. And ever since then, I have traveled myself and done that kind of stuff. It was it's super inspiring. It changed me with, when I heard that. Uh, you know, appreciate that, Duncan. Thank you. Yeah. Do you feel that connection with the SCI community? I, honestly, I don't have a specific connection to the SCI community. I just live my life as a person, not as a person with a disability. And I I just, I don't know, maybe now because I'm on Salt Spring, I, don't, I haven't even seen another person in a wheelchair, but I'm happy to be involved with a podcast like this so I can let my story out. I don't see a lot of folks in Undermall either in uh, wheelchairs. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, kind of, I'm not an anomaly, but I'm, I don't see a lot of other chairs around here. Sure, I bet not. What are some of the things uh, you do in your daily life that have the biggest impact on your health and well-being? Um, well, most importantly, to never uh, get into a routine of being stagnant. I get up every day and have a shower every day get and then I'll do laundry and clean up and whatever I can do to keep my body moving and that's one thing I really enjoy about painting is it it's you know it makes me go to art stores and get supplies it makes me go buy paint it makes me go search out images by driving around uh, and then painting itself is a physical activity I, I use big cans of paint and I paint on large canvases uh, sometimes four by eight feet. So I'm always picking up stuff and moving things. And even when the paintings are done, you, you're packing them and taking them to galleries, hopefully. And uh, it just keeps me active. I could be more active. I'm sure everybody could. I, I don't actually exercise because I try just to keep doing stuff until my head hits the pillow. Mm -hmm. I did just buy a speed bag because in Emily Carr, we, or Emily Carr, at GF Strong, we used a speed bag for some physical exercise, and I'm looking forward to getting that going for the winter. Your shoulders are holding out okay? They're getting stronger and stronger all the time. I get neck pains once in a while, uh, get some massage therapy, but I've, I live medication-free, and other than the odd UTI, I'm, I think I'm good. Murray, it's been really awesome to reconnect with you. Uh, do you have any words of wisdom you'd like to leave me with? Oh, man, I mean, just try. Like, don't sit around. You just got to try and do stuff and expose yourself, and it'll make you stronger. Awesome. It's been great talking with you, man.
Yeah, you too. Good to see you, Brian. Have fun up there. Yeah, I, I'm so glad I uh, I reconnected with you here, and uh, yeah. I'd like to like to talk to you or maybe come and visit you one day. Yeah, let me know if you make it to these islands. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to go to Salt Spring again. And I'll hit you up if I'm in the caribou. Yeah, for, absolutely do that for sure. All right. Well, that's it for Quad Life. Thanks, Murray, for joining us today. For more information about Murray's art and upcoming projects, please visit www.walletmoth.com. We will also have the link posted on the Quad Life Facebook page. Well, that's it for the show. Just remember, sometimes life throws you some lemons. So just shit your pants and get back out there. And then go make some lemonade.